series on inextinguishable joy, and so it was probably inevitable that we would come to talk about complaining and murmuring and, uh, and contentment at uh, some point in this series, and that's where we find ourselves in today's passage. I wonder how, where you are at in this whole uh, area of complaining. Uh, there's a, uh, an author by the name of Jeff Mannion, and he describes the challenge of uh, complaining in a way that is uh, uh, vivid and uh, uh, helps me to, uh, to see it. He says this, Generally, you don't have to extend an invitation for complaint to show up. It arrives as an uninvited, uninvited guest. You return home from yet another frustrating day to discover that complaint has moved into your guest room, unpacked its luggage, started a load of laundry and is rooting through your fridge. Even as you seek to dislodge complaint, as you move its bags to the curb and change the locks, it crawls back in through the guest room window. Complaint, he says, resists eviction. Before we know it, complaint feels right because it's so familiar. Anybody know what he's talking about? Is this a a picture of anything that you've experienced? I think complaints always start in the same place, but they tend to go in different directions. They can be expressed in different ways. Complaints tend to start with frustration, but they can be that frustration can be sent in, in different directions. Sometimes the frustration is with the world. We're frustrated with our circumstances. We're frustrated with other people. And, uh, and, and, and we've probably all felt a sense of that. But sometimes our biggest frustrations are with ourselves. We're frustrated with, with who we are or what we've done or, or how we've uh, responded to different things. There was an article I read recently entitled, Why Billy Joel Stopped Making Albums. And it was interesting to me because just this summer, if some of you had heard, there was a little bit of a, of a splash around Billy Joel because he had, had performed his 100th uh, performance at Madison Square Garden. If you're almost 70 and you are still uh, packing out Madison Square Garden, 20,000 people capacity, coming to hear you, you, you sing and, and play the piano, you're, you're doing something right. You have some, some talent. But although he, had, he has that, uh, that popularity and, and, uh, and talent, the article said he hasn't released a new album in 25 years. And it said his reluctance to write new songs stems largely from his critics, who have often savaged his music as sappy and shallow. So he's been on the receiving end of a lot of complaints. But it's not just from outside that he's getting the complaints. It's also from his own voice. Uh, he, he has uh, been notoriously unsatisfied with his music, not content with the, uh, his own musical abilities. He said, I never felt as good as I wanted to be. My bar was Beethoven. Here is someone who is successful, talented, has all kinds of, uh, of ability, and yet there's something inside him that says, not good enough. Uh, and, and it is that sense of discontentment with who he is and what he's accomplished, what he's got, that fuels uh, a, a complaint that 
even, even despite his, uh, his great talents, limits him, holds him back. Uh, it keeps him from being the person that he could be, keeps him from uh, doing uh, things that he would otherwise be capable of. And I don't know where you fall in there. I don't know where, whether your tendency to, with discontentment is with the world, with your circumstances, with other people. I don't know whether your complaints may be more geared towards your complaining against yourself. You, you tend to be your greatest critic. The question I do want to ask this morning is, is there anything we can do about it? Can, can we move from there to somewhere else? And because Jeff Mannion, when he describes uh, uh, this, this issue, he says, complaint resists eviction. Trying to deal with this is really difficult, he says. It just seems to keep coming back. So is there anything we can do about it? Or with Billy Joel, he, he seems to just have accepted his inner critic, his, uh, the complaint and discontent he has with himself and says, well, I'm just going to do this. I'm gonna, I'll keep doing, doing concerts as long as people buy my tickets, but I just don't have the confidence to write new music because I, I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I've, I've, I've got, got what it takes. Can we change? Is there power to change? And this morning's passage, while dealing with complaining and grumbling, while dealing with contentment, really at its heart is about this power to change. Specifically, the fact that God gives us power to change and in, in this morning's passage gives us some idea on how we can harness that power, how we can find God's help in becoming a different person. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn with me. We're in uh, the book of Philippians. We've been working our way uh, through this book since uh, the beginning of September, and today we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of God. Now, there are three ways that I believe this passage helps us to move from complaining and discontent to rejoicing and the contentment that God wants for us. And I, just want to walk, walk through them one by one. Uh, first is to live out your salvation, don't just receive it. There, there can be a tendency to think that this thing called salvation that the Bible talks about is something that we receive 
so that sometime a lot later on we can go to heaven and doesn't really have that much to say about what happens in between. But according to the Bible, and in, this, in today's passage in particular, salvation is something that we are to uh, uh, live out, not just to receive. I want to dig into some of the, the details of, of today's uh, passage so you can see some of that. And it's important because although this passage is talking about complaining and grumbling and contentment and some of those things, it doesn't start there. And it doesn't start there for a really important reason. Because when it comes to personal change, where we start will determine how far we get. If you just start with complaining, you will not get very far in dealing with complaining. If you just start, I'm going to be more content, you will not find yourself getting very far in contentment. It's important, the Bible says, where you start. And so I want to dig into the text and see where, where we're supposed to start. In verse 12, it starts with the word, therefore. And that word, therefore, is going to point us back to what we saw earlier in this chapter, particularly verses 5 to 11, where it described what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. It speaks there of a Savior who loved us so deeply that he was willing to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. And, and so it is with us, with, with an understanding that if we are going to change, we will, we will change because we have started at the cross, recognizing what Jesus did for us there and uh, coming to terms with the, the, the depth of his sacrifice for us. If you have received that, then the appeal is for us to think upon that, to remember that 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 becomes then the motivation for some of the changes that we would make in our lives. Notice what happens after the therefore. There, Paul follows it with the words, my beloved. Now, it's not Valentine's Day. This isn't a love letter. And yet Paul wants to express to the Philippians, before he talks to them about change, before he talks to them about dealing with things in their life, he wants to remind them and have them be aware of and fixed in their mind, you are loved by God. That there is a, a God who loves you where you are, as you are, and that that love and security is a strength that will then become the basis for dealing with some of the deeper issues in your life. Next, I want, to, want you to see how he talks about salvation. In the second half of verse 12, Paul says, work out your own salvation. He's encouraging change on the basis of salvation, but he's stressing that it's your own salvation. Now, this is not your own salvation in the sense that you have to do it yourself, because he's just been telling us through the letter that it's, it's exactly the opposite of that. This is something that God does. This is something that Jesus accomplished for us. What he is saying, though, is the Bible's message is that there is good news for all people. That through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven of our sins. There is a great salvation that Jesus accomplished at the cross, but we need to make it our own salvation. By faith, we take what Jesus did and make it our own. We receive it personally. And, and so before getting into any talk about change, about what to do and how to change, before you do anything of that, he's saying this salvation is something that you need to make 
make personal. Make it your own. Make it your, uh, your experience of Jesus Christ's uh, salvation at the cross. Once you've done that, then he can, then he can move on. But that, that starting point is so crucial. Once you have, then the appeal is to work out your own salvation. It's interesting language. He doesn't say work for your salvation because we can't do that. The Bible says there is nothing that we can do to earn God's forgiveness, to earn his acceptance. Don't try and work for your salvation. It also doesn't say work on your salvation, like Jesus started it and you've got to finish it. The Bible says Jesus finished at the cross everything necessary for us to be forgiven before a holy God. It does not say work on your salvation. It says instead work out your salvation. And the idea is that we have received a great gift of salvation from Jesus Christ, but it's supposed to be worked out in our lives. It's supposed to change the way we think, the way we talk, the way we act, the decisions that we make. Work it out. Work it out in the different facets of your life. Figure out how this great salvation, this this great joy that we have, that we are now connected to God through faith in Christ, work that out in how you live. Work that out in in the different aspects of your life. And as we're, we're living out that salvation that Jesus made possible, the verse goes on to say the attitude that we should have as we're doing it. The attitude is important. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, fear and trembling, we've seen before, but we'll, we'll say it again. Fear and trembling speaks of an attitude of gravity, of weight, of respect and reverence and awe. It, it's, the attitude, it's the opposite of the attitude of a light and casual approach to God. It's a it's their, their words of, of weight and understanding that God is to be treated with a, a sense of, uh, of awe and reverence. And these are difficult words to us because for whatever reason, 2018 in Canada, we are radically casual. Our language is casual, casual our dress is casual, our relationships are casual. Every, almost everything about our cal- culture is casual. We love casual. But the Bible says that if you have a casual approach to God, it will actually be an obstacle and a hindrance to your personal growth. Because a casual approach to God treats God as a lightweight. And if God is a lightweight in your mind, then you have a wrong view of God. He is a heavyweight, and he is to be treated with a sense of awe and reverence and respect. Now, when God gave the law at Mount Sinai, he gave us this great picture of the fear and the reverence and awe that we are to have towards him. Because when God revealed the law at at Sinai, it didn't just come in a sermon. Uh, God gave the tablets of stone to Moses, but before he did that, he put on a bit of a show. There was lightning in the sky. There there was a rumbling of an earthquake in in the mountain. There were these peals of, th- of, uh, of, of thunder, and then there were the, the trumpets letting out these, these uh, blasts of, of their horns. And everything was to create a sense of awe for the people. And, and Moses describes 
exactly what God was doing with it. In Exodus 20.20, he says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The purpose of the big show was not to scare them. It wasn't just so that they'd be scared because he says don't fear. But it was, it was intended to cure the people of a light, casual attitude towards God. Because that would be their, an obstacle and an ongoing hindrance in their ability to face and confront the sin that would inevitably confront them. So the fear of God protects us from sin. And a proper awe and reverence towards God is actually a strength as we are seeking to bring personal change. So God gives us power to change, we said, but it's important where we start. We start with Jesus, we start at the cross, and we keep returning there and we keep thinking deeply about what Jesus accomplished there for us. We remind ourselves that what he did on the cross is something that we personally need to respond to. We make it our own salvation, not somebody else's. We receive him as our own. And then we live it out. We, we look for ways to see that this, this great salvation that we have received is translated into actual change in our lives. And as we do that, we, we do it with a sense of reverence and awe towards the God who loves us. So we're looking at God's power to change, and we start by looking back at what he's done. But it doesn't stop there by looking back at what he's done. It also rests in the present. We trust in the power of God working in us. And here the idea is that we're not alone in this process. We're not alone as we are seeking to bring changes in our lives. We can trust in the power of God working in us. I want you to see, after that appeal that we just read in verse 12, where it said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, watch what Paul does. He says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's really important because you know you, and I know me. And so if we're going to talk about, like, change that is as, as deep and profound as things like contentment and facing difficult circumstances and instead of grumbling, like accepting them, actually rejoicing in the midst of difficulty because we believe and trust in a God who is greater than those circumstances. If we're going to talk about changes of that level, we know ourselves well enough to know what we're capable of, Right? We know our limitations. And, and so if, if this is just about me trying harder, I don't know if, I've, I don't know if that's going to work. And so the, 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 the appeal here is to recognize that there is a God who is not only on our side, it's not like he's just cheering for us, he is actually at work within us to bring about change. If you're a believer... God is at work in you. He is seeking to bring change in you. And because of that, change is possible. I, I love the way Paul describes how this actually took place and how it actually worked out in his life in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. He starts there by saying, 
I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And at that point, you're saying, yeah, you're right, Paul, you were really a lousy guy. Like you, you, you really were starting at the bottom rung of the ladder. And, and frankly, like where you're at, there wasn't much hope for, for any progress. And you're thinking, surely a guy like that, his horizon of Christian growth has got to be pretty low. There's not much that you could really expect from him. But then he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. He's saying that God has given him grace and strength to become someone that nobody ever dreamed he would, it would be capable of becoming. Personal change was, was possible in his life at a remarkable uh, to a remarkable extent. And at that point, we read that part of the verse and we stand back and we say, wow, it really is incredible what God did in Paul's life. And we're, we're inspired. We're, we're thinking, that was really great. But then we say, I guess it didn't work in me because I'm just kind of here. Like I, I don't seem to have gone that far. I don't seem to have made that big a change. And maybe that's where some of you are this morning. You're kind of stuck. You're inspired what God does in other people's lives. It just hasn't happened in you, and you're not sure why. And I want you to see how Paul ends his train of thought in verse 10. He says, On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Here's what's happening. Paul felt God's power and grace at work in his life. But instead of standing back and saying, wow, God's working in my life. I'll just sit and wait and see how it works. No, he said, God is at work and so change is possible. So I'm going to pour everything I've got into this. I'm going to work harder than I've ever worked because now there's a possibility that actually change could take place. Now, because God is at work in me, there's... There's a, there's a hope of victory. There's a hope of, of really making a, a difference in some of these issues that have just been nagging at me for too long. Alone he was stuck, but with God at work in him, anything was possible. Now, if we return to Philippians, Paul spells out a little bit more about how God works in us. In verse 13, it says that God works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I want you to look at those two phrases because they're really, really important in understanding what what God is actually doing. Because if God just worked to change our behavior, we would do the right things, but it would be absolute drudgery, right? God could just make us do the right things and we'd be obedient but miserable. Because inside we're saying, I'm doing the right thing, but I sure wish I could do the wrong thing. And, and, and there'd be that, that constant sense of, boy, I hate this, but boy, am I good. God doesn't just do that. He says that he works and to transform our will. He makes obedience attractive. He draws us to rethink, gives us new desires, new wants, so that we want to do what he wants us to do. But notice that he doesn't just do that. If God just changed our will, 
we would be living in constant frustration because we'd want to do what's right, we'd want what God wants, we'd want to do good, but we'd always blow it in the execution and live with constant frustration. Boy, I wish I could be good, but I never am. And the Bible says that that's not how God works in our lives. He works to transform not only our will, but also our work, our desires, and also our actions. He works both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, he doesn't do it all at once. It's a day-by-day, step-by-step process. But he does work. He works to transform our desires and our wants. He works to transform our actions. He also doesn't do it for us. It's not like he, he does his transformation work and we just kind of sit back as spectators. He doesn't work do that work for us. He does it to empower us. He gives us strength to change. He gives us power to change. And often people will come at this from two different perspectives, two extremes. One of the extremes I see is that people just don't know that God works in them to to transform their will, to make them uh, more conform to to his his, uh, pleasure. They don't know that God is at work in them, so they think it's all up to them. And they know what they're capable of, and they feel kind of hopeless. That's one extreme. The other extreme is that people do know that God is at work in them. And they think, well, if God's at work in me, then he's going to do what he's going to do, and I'll just kind of sit back as a spectator and see how it turns out. And, And neither of those extremes are what's being described here. Interestingly, the great evangelist D.L. Moody, if you're familiar with him, he fell into the second camp. Listen to what he said. When I was converted, I made this mistake. I thought the battle was already mine, the victory already won, the crown already in my grasp. I thought the old things had passed away, that all things had become new, and that my old corrupt nature, the old life, was gone. But I found out after serving Christ for a few months That conversion was only like enlisting in the army, that there was a battle at hand. He realized there's more more going on here. The fact that God is at work in you is to motivate you to change. It's to give you the hope that change is possible because God's on your side and it doesn't all depend on you. But it doesn't all depend on God. We, we We are called to Uh, a a role in partnering with God in this great work that he's doing in our lives. Paul gives a picture of this balance and battle in Colossians 1.29. There he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. See what he's saying there? He, He said God's energy is powerfully working inside him. And that moves him to toil. That moves him to struggle with some of the issues in his life and some of the the, the habits and things that would otherwise hold him down. He works at it. He's in the battle. It's not let go and let God. It's God's at work in me, so I'm going to give this everything I've got. It's a little bit, um, 
this is really a stretch, I realize. But it's a little bit like if you're playing for the Toronto FC, you're kind of about halfway through the season and you're 10 points away from a playoff spot. If you're the average player and you don't have uh, contract negotiations hanging over you, at that point you're thinking, I don't know if I'm going to give this my best. You're kind of going to, you're still going to go through the motions. You're going to jog around the pitch, but you're not really going to give your best to the game because you know that it's hopeless. No matter how hard you try, you're not going to find yourself in a playoff position. But at then at that point, you hear that for some crazy reason, Cristiano Ronaldo has been traded from Juventus to Toronto FC. I don't know how they do that with salary caps or anything else, but he ends up on the team. And you could respond to that in two different ways. Maybe there's someone that would say, wow, if he's on our team, like we're, we're, we're showing, we, we've won this without even showing up. I'll just sit on the bench. It doesn't really matter. You could still jog sluggishly around the pitch. But I don't think most people would do that. I think that most people at that point would say, wow, Cristiano Ronaldo's on our team. We, we could actually win this. And they would rise to play the best game of their career. They would rise to give themselves to, to, their, to their game because there was confidence and hope of victory. And that's what I think this passage is talking about here. When it's talking about God is at work inside you. And if he's at work inside you because you started at the cross, because you through faith in Jesus Christ became one of those whom he calls his beloved children. If you started there, then know that God is at work to change you from the inside. And so change is possible. And so he's saying, get in the game. Get in the battle. Start dealing. Is Paul's language? Start toiling and struggling with some of those issues that you know that are holding you back in your relationship with Christ. Some of those sins and habits and patterns that if you were on your own would sink you and you would not be able to make progress in. But because God is at work in your life, there is hope. There is the hope of victory. But he calls you to get in the battle. So there are many different areas. We could talk, if, if we just did a survey here, maybe, maybe you'd say, yeah, I, I, I think I know what Paul's talking about. I think that the sin in my life and the patterns and the habits, and I think these are the things I need to work on. Paul will take us here in this passage to one specific area of, uh, of sin that we need to confront, and it's the issue of discontentment, where we, where we began our talk this morning, this idea of grumbling and complaining and accepting God and uh, what he's doing in our lives. He calls us to resist discontentment and choose to rejoice. And he reminds us that contentment is possible in Christ. He shows us that with Jesus, we can choose to rejoice instead of complaining. I want you to see how this works out. In verse 24, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, some of you read that and you say, that's that's an interesting statement. There's some of you, however, in this congregation who have read your Bibles enough that you say, those are some familiar words. I think I've heard them before. Where, for instance, have you heard the words grumbling or disputing in connection with the children of God? 
some of you, are, your minds are going back to those passages in Exodus and Numbers where it talks about how the, the children of God left Egypt and you think, boy, they're going to be really thrilled. They're going to be so thankful for what God has done. And what do they do? They just grumble and complain, right? Uh, and, and even this, the, the words without blemish and even though they're in the midst of a, a crooked and, and twisted generation, those words are deliberately lifted out of uh, a, a verse, uh, Deuteronomy 32.5, where Moses is speaking about that grumbling generation and uh, the, the, the generation that died in the wilderness. And he says this of them, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Now, I'll explain these passages and what Paul is teaching from them. But, I, but before that, I want to explain how we typically read them. Uh, what do we usually say when we read those passages about the Israelites grumbling? You've said it. I've said it. You've been in the Bible studies where you've heard people say it. We tend to say, they're just like us. That's what we say, Right? What I want you to see, though, is that Paul's saying the exact opposite of that. He's saying, heaven forbid, we have received this great salvation. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has actually died for us. It should never be that we should be just like that. We shouldn't be like the generation that died in the wilderness. We shouldn't be like the generation that didn't enter into the promised land. We're supposed to be different. We're not supposed to be like that. He actually says, if our grumbling and discontent isn't any different than those who died in the wilderness, in verse 16, he's wondering, maybe I've run in vain. Maybe I've labored in vain. Maybe, maybe these people, referring to the Philippian uh, church, maybe they haven't understood Christianity at all. Maybe, they've, maybe I've completely missed it. Because we're supposed to be different. If people are just responding like the world responds, then maybe they haven't grasped that power to change after all. And he's saying, yes, you may be living in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, verse 15. We may be surrounded by people who grumble and complain, who are never satisfied, who look at their own lives and always say, not good enough. We may be surrounded by people like that, but he says... We're supposed to shine as lights in the world. We were never supposed to be like that. And in fact, God has given us power to change. He's at work in our lives so that we wouldn't be like that. He's given us the power to change. Thankfully, the Christian life is never just the sum of the things that we don't do. So he's going to end by talking about not just Stop grumbling. He tells us to start doing something else. Start rejoicing. He'll start with his own situation. As we've said, Paul at this point is imprisoned right now. He's awaiting uh, a sen sentencing where he will, he will either be acquitted or he will receive the death sentence. I love how Paul describes this trial and possible death for Christ. He says in verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, the drink offering, if you didn't know, is the 
smallest and most insignificant of all of the offerings. If you were going to make a sacrifice, you really were impressing God, you'd bring a bull. Maybe you'd bring a, a lamb or, or, or a goat. But once you'd done the really significant offering, then they would have just a drink offering where they would take, uh, take some, some, some wine and, and pour it out before the Lord. And it would just, that was the, it was just the icing on the cake. It was just a small and insignificant thing. And Paul's saying, if I'm imprisoned for the Lord, if I'm actually, if, if this doesn't turn out well and, and I'm, I face the death sentence and I am martyred for my faith, it's just like a drink offering. Just a, it's a, just a little thing. And I can be glad and rejoice in that. Not because he loves dying, not because like his death is great per se, not just because he, he, he thinks that suffering and injustice are good things, he doesn't, but because he knows that he can trust that there is a good God who loves him and who, who can guide him through whatever he may have to face. He can trust that God, God is in control and he can trust that that God will be faithful to him. And so even if his life will be poured out like a drink offering, he says, I can be glad, rejoice. And then finally he says in verse 18, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice. This isn't just about me, he says. This is about you and what God is calling you to do. The life that God is calling you to live. I'm thinking... Yeah, but what, what if I've been two years waiting for the approval on a parking lot application? Be glad and rejoice. God's still in control. You can trust him. I'm thinking, what if I get a diagnosis that I don't like and I don't know how I can handle it? And the verse says to be glad and rejoice. What if someone is really hurt me and, and disappointed me. And I, I, don't know, I don't know how to respond. He says, be glad and rejoice. God is still in control. God is, can still be trusted. It, it's a call in all circumstances, and it's predicated on the fact that a lot of those circumstances are going to be bad, that we are to be glad and rejoice. And you're saying, I don't know if I can do that. And I'm saying the same thing. And the text says, go back to the cross. Start there. I know that you don't think you can do it. Start at the cross and remember the Savior who loves you. Remember the one who loved you enough to die in your place. Remember that salvation and make it your own. And make it your own again today and again tomorrow and again the next day. And once you have made that salvation your own, then remember that you're not alone in this. You're working out your salvation, but you're not alone working out your salvation. God is powerfully at work in your life to bring change, not just in your actions, but from the inside out, changing your wants and desires so that you would be conformed. You're not alone in this. And as you do, remember that that God isn't a lightweight. Treat him with reverence and awe, with, with fear and trembling, because he is a God who is worthy of that kind of respect. He's a great and powerful God, 
And he's at work in your life if you know him through faith in Jesus Christ. So rejoice and be glad. Take hold of that goodness of God as you seek to work out your salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the help that you give. I thank you, Father, that there is power to change. Help us to lay hold of it. We don't want to just live like the world. We don't want to live like that generation that died in the wilderness. So help us to trust you. Help us to submit to you. And Father, help us to somehow accept that your plan is good even when we can't see it. Help us to stop complaining. Help us to be content in the life you've given us and content with how you've made us because we believe that you are a great and faithful God. We praise you in Jesus' name.